All right, folks. If you don't mind, I'll borrow your attention for a few minutes here. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Ruth today, and I just want to make a special reminder announcement to you. We'll start at the first verse of chapter 3. If you were not here last week or the week before, even if today's your very first Sunday, uh, we would like to give you, if you want one, a copy of the book of Ruth in journal form. Uh, so this is uh, it's just a little blue book. They're out on the welcome table in the lobby. I also moved a handful of them up here and put them on top of the speaker box, so you can grab one if you want one. Uh, you don't have to use one of these. This doesn't like make you a better or worse Christian, but our hope is that it'll help remove some of the distractions that are very easy to get distracted by in a setting like this, and that as you take notes, um, you know, I'm going to give you a couple major points today, and maybe if you're a, a Bible writer, you might write those into the margin, but there may be some nuance or something to the story today that sticks out to you, and uh, these give you a little bit more real estate to work with if you're interested in uh, being able to follow along and take some notes. In fact, the book of Ruth is so short that once you get to the end of chapter 4, there's like 25 pages of just blank paper. So you can sketch, draw, doodle, grocery list, whatever. Maybe, you know, try not to do that right while I'm preaching, but that's up to you. Uh, today, specifically, we will start in chapter 3, verse 1, which is only about seven or eight pages in. So if you want to head that direction, if you don't want to do that, that's no problem, but we want to make sure you are aware that these are available to you uh, as we work our way through this book in the season of Advent. Uh, the title of the overall series that we're working through is called Joy in Waiting, which sounds a little bit like an oxymoron. Uh, we often think of joy, I do at least, as the fruit of some kind of fulfillment, the finish line of a bunch of activity, uh, arriving at a place, arriving in a position, receiving the thing we worked for. One of the realities of the Christian life is that God does not wait on us to arrive before he begins to grow his spirit in us. We begin to see the fruit born of being a follower of Jesus Christ, and part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, is knowing that despite my circumstances, there is something in me that is so rooted in the eternal reality of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ that it doesn't mean I'm immune. It's not like I don't feel bad or have bad days or wish things went a different way, but there's some sense of solidity. There's an emotional foundation that's rooted in truth in my life uh, that's called joy. And so that's what we're approaching. We've defined Advent in a way that hopefully will help you kind of orient yourself around that idea. Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas Day. Uh, so that's why we're on the third week this week, and we'll wrap up next weekend at our Christmas Eve services. We define Advent as a season of waiting, first and foremost, or excuse me, of remembering. So we're looking back at what Jesus has done, but it's also a season of anticipating Jesus. What will he do? What's left for him to do? What does he need to do in my life personally? Or what is he doing on the global scale? Or what is he doing on the timeline of civilization? These are the kinds of things where the Bible speaks to us always having a hope. A way to think about this is when you're a Christian, in your life, despite how you feel, you're always experiencing a sunrise and never fully a sunset. Now again, that doesn't mean that life is not hard, that things will not go differently than you would like for them to. You'll experience loss and grief and pain. What Advent tells us is that those things don't represent the absence of God. Those are not evidences or proofs that God isn't real or he isn't around or he doesn't care, not at all. In fact, how we walk through those things and how God uses the turmoil and the challenges and the waiting, which frankly most of us hate, how he uses those things proves that he's active and present in our lives. The things that could be only negative, the things that could be just challenging about this time of year, God may actually use as fertilizer in our spiritual lives, in our relationships, to grow and to stretch us in a direction that, frankly, we probably didn't want to go on our own. But we follow him, and he sustains us. So from a very high level, that's what we're looking at the book of Ruth. We're trying to trace this theme. When we come to Ruth's story, which is really the story of her mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth starts as kind of a minor character, and then here in chapter 3, she sort of becomes the main character, along with another man named Boaz. Uh, we see that her whole life has been waiting. 
she's a Moabite woman. She grows up in a place that, that she's not heard about the living God, the God of, 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 that we worship, the God of Israel, at this point in the story of, of God's people. And so she encounters a man uh, who she marries, who is from Israel. He's moved into Moab with his mother and father and his brother and his brother's wife. And within a very short period of time, a handful of years, uh, the patriarch, the husband and the father of that Israelite family dies while the family's in Moab. And then the two sons, one of whom is Ruth's husband, they both pass away very, very close together. And so suddenly, what was a thriving, healthy family with a lot of hope on the horizon becomes essentially three widows who cannot legally provide for one another, are not allowed to really own property or take care of themselves in that society. And whether we think that's right or not, it's, it, that's their circumstances. They, there's no getting around it. They can't advocate for themselves. And so the mother-in-law, Naomi, confronts her two daughters-in-law, both of whom are Moabite women, and says, I'm leaving Moab. I'm going away from the place where you fit in and, and what you're familiar with, and I'm going back to Israel where I came from, a place you've never been to before, where you might be vilified, where you're considered an enemy of the state. I don't think you should come with me. I think it'll be dangerous. I don't think it'll go well. And honestly, I'm so old, I can't provide you with new sons of my own for you to marry so that you can have a life that you want to have. One of the, the daughters-in-law, Orpah, says, that's enough for me. That's all I really needed to hear. I will stay in Moab. I love you, but goodbye. Good luck. The other young woman, whose name is Ruth, after whom this story and this book of the Bible is named, says this awesome thing in chapter one to Naomi, where she commits herself in life and death to this woman, this widow woman who has nothing to offer her. And she says, I will worship your God. I will die where you die. I will eat what you eat. I will go where you go. And so that moves us into chapter two, where Ruth makes good on that commitment. She follows Naomi on foot all the way back to a town called Bethlehem a town that you're probably familiar with, even if you don't typically attend church because you've heard of it as the very famous birthplace of Jesus, and it is. It's also the place where one of the more famous men in the Old Testament is from, a man named David, and we'll find out at the end of chapter four next week why that is, why Bethlehem ends up being kind of on the, on the family tree of Jesus. But for now, what matters is that Naomi, the mother-in-law, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, have made it back home, in a sense. Now, there's nothing really waiting on them there. They don't have property, they don't have holdings, there's not family that they're aware of at this point who can take care of them. And so in chapter two, where we were last week, we follow Ruth just making the best of her circumstances, keeping her head down, working as hard as she can, taking it a day at a time, and we see that God meets her there by providing for her. She doesn't earn the provision, we have to be careful that we don't do that, that we don't turn the story of Ruth into a story of how if you work hard enough, God will take really good care of you, which is not a lesson the Bible teaches. But Ruth is faithful in her waiting, and God is working behind the scenes in a way that she can't see. And so she comes back from a day in the fields. She's been working behind a group of professional men who are harvesting a crop called barley. And she's been allowed to collect enough of what's left over in the field after they've done their work that she brings home 30 pounds of food to her mother-in-law. As they're speaking with each other in chapter 2, her mother-in-law just kind of asks in a passing way, uh, whose field did you wind up in today? Because Naomi, we assume, has stayed in town. Ruth has gone to the outskirts of town where the farmland is. And so Naomi asks the question, and Ruth says, uh, some guy named Boaz. Have you ever heard of him before? And suddenly things change for Naomi. Specifically in verse 20 of chapter 2, Naomi seems to move from a very bitter person who's been obsessed with her circumstances. She lost both of her sons. She lost her husband. She's coming back to a town that she kind of left in shame, and now she's having to face that with all these people who have expectations for her. Maybe you've experienced something like this before. And suddenly, the light kind of breaks through the clouds for Naomi. And she realizes that although God is not going to resurrect the three men who she loved and has lost, he has something else for her prepared, that her life isn't over, that there could be hope involved. So she gets really excited. It's fun to kind of watch Ruth not totally understand why Boaz is a really big deal. And that's about where we pick things up today. At the beginning of chapter 3, 
Ruth and Naomi are still having this dialogue about this man named Boaz, and Naomi is going to start moving really, really quickly. So if you are reading this for the first time and you feel a little bit of narrative whiplash, honestly, if you were really familiar with the book, it still feels that way. This is a major, quick turning point where Naomi goes from kind of being passive and depressed and hopeless to very engaged and very excited and eager to follow God and see what he's going to do. So let's follow along with that. We'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. At that time, Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, I have to find a home for you so that you'll be secure. Just take a quick pause right there. This is not new information. At the close of chapter one, this is the very thing that Naomi said to both of her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah ends up leaving because she doesn't think Naomi can do that. Ruth decides to stay committed and stay close by. So this has been Naomi's kind of central thought from the time that her sons died, is she's got to take care of these two daughters-in-law, only one of whom is with her now. So she goes on to say, Now Boaz, with whose female servants you worked, is actually our close relative. So Naomi now is revealing why she's excited. There's something going on here legally that could maybe mean that Naomi and Ruth are taken care of again. She says, look, tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. We're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. Probably not something that you have a ton of experience with. But here's her instructions to Ruth. She says, you need to take a bath, okay, which is, I don't know, maybe mean, but it's true. Take a bath. You've been working all day. Put on something that smells nice, rub on some perfumed oil, and get dressed up. And then once you've done that, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you're there until he finishes his meal. We'll talk about that in a minute. Why is that important? When he gets ready to go to sleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down. Then go, uncover his legs, and lie down beside him. He will tell you what you should do. Pretty bold plan, Naomi. What does Ruth say? She's like, okay. (laughs) I don't think I would have said that. I think I would have been like, I don't understand any of these steps. I'm not sure what we're doing. Is this like, is this a game? Am I supposed to spy on him? I mean, think through what this woman is telling Ruth, a foreigner, a Moabite. Her skin is the wrong color. Her accent does not fit in with the people around her. She is considered an enemy of the state from from the king of Israel has declared, we are at war with Moab. And she's supposed to take a bath, put on perfume, get dressed in something nice, like her evening robes, I guess. I think everybody wore robes back then. Then she's supposed to sneak onto this man's property, watch him eat his dinner from a distance, remember where he lays down on the ground, because nobody has a flashlight or a cell phone. So like once it's dark, she's never going to find him among all the other men that are sleeping. Then she's supposed to sneak over to where he is, uncover his legs, and then just sit there. That's the last step of the plan. There's no like, after a certain amount of time, if he doesn't wake up, you need to come back and we'll regroup. Just Indian style until Boaz awakes, I guess, and see what happens. I don't know. And then Ruth is like, let's do it. That sounds great to me. A lot of faith, okay? Ruth has been very faithful so far in the story. Here's what's going on. I want to first tell you what isn't happening, and then I want to tell you what is happening. I want to say, for those of you who may have heard this story taught in other church settings, that anybody who has alluded to the idea that there are sexual undertones in what Naomi is telling Ruth to do is wrong. They're wrong. I'm not mad at them. I've been wrong many times. I hope that they'll figure out that they were wrong. But there is no illusion in the original language. There is no reason to believe that what Naomi is primarily encouraging Ruth to do is use her body or something about her physical appearance to convince a man to do something that is unwise and would be wrong for both of them. That's not on the table. Here's what is happening. You're dealing with a group of people who are in a very specific season in the life of their city. You and I probably haven't spent a lot of time in agricultural spaces, but I can tell you from my own past experience 
When I was in central Kentucky, which is a place where a lot of people still farm corn and other things for a living, there were seasons of the year when students that were in junior high and high school who were old enough to help were dismissed from school. They were excused from exams if it was time to be in the field and bring in the harvest. It was that big of a deal. For these kinds of people in an agricultural society, the grain that they're harvesting is not just food and it isn't only a commodity to sell. It functions as a bartering tool, so it falls in the category of money. It's also, therefore, any part of it that they save and dry becomes savings. It's their security in their future that they'll have food or they'll be able to trade in the future. It's also how they're going to drink most of the time. They're going to ferment some of this barley, whether you think they should or not. They're going to do it. Uh, This happened a long time ago, and they're going to do it in such a way that they drink it generally responsibly, but they can't trust the groundwater where they live for the most part. There's no good process to purify the water that they drink, so it's going to fall into that category as well. It's going to be used in ceremonies, both in sacrifices made at synagogues and the temple, as well as in drink form. It's going to be poured out at times for feast days and other offerings. It's also going to be used to feed the family in the form of bread and mash and other things like that. It's also going to be used to feed the animals that are going to produce milk and eggs and wool and fleece and things that you need in order to clothe yourself and to survive. This barley is an all or nothing investment for these people. It's a huge deal. So that gives us a little bit of context on why a man would eat his meal out in the fields, why in the world he would lie down outside with no bed next to his mountain of barley, and all the other kind of subtleties that are going on here. So here's what is actually happening. Ruth is going to be instructed, she has been, by Naomi, to go out to Boaz's land. She knows where it is. She was there a couple of days ago, maybe even that morning. She's going to be told to watch him eat Not, as some people have taught, to imply that he's going to get drunk. There's no reason at all to think that he's inebriated. The Bible doesn't tell us he even drinks any alcohol in this passage. But because when the sun goes down, you can't find him anymore, like I told you. So she's got to watch him while he eats. He's going to be very tired and very hungry after a day of hard work. We'll go there in a minute. Winnowing barley is not easy to do. He's going to lay down near his pile of barley because that is 100% of all of the assets that he really has in the world. Anything he's going to spend, anything in the future he needs to be able to buy, like I said, the food, the drink, the cattle, everything, all kind of revolves around this barley harvest. And so what do other people want to do? Well, they want to wait until the barley has been winnowed, until it's really just the grain heads of the barley, and then they want to sneak in at night and take it. They want to steal it all. So it's wise of Boaz and his men to set up camp literally on the ground around the pile of barley so that nobody can get to it. So in a way, it makes logical sense why Ruth is taking the steps that she's taking. But also, if you and I were hearing this story proclaimed in a synagogue or taught in the temple uh, around the time that this story actually happened, we would be really nervous for Ruth. Because the only kind of person who sneaks up on a working man in harvest season is a criminal. The only kind of person who wakes a sleeping man who's lying down literally next to a pile of his only physical investments in the world, very likely armed, okay, it's implied, very likely armed, the only kind of person who does that is somebody who's trying to steal from him and is therefore a threat. So on the one hand, I want you to be excited because we're finally seeing some activity and this is fun. The Bible's building us up to see what's going to happen next and to anticipate it. On the other hand, we have to be cautious with Ruth here. What if she gets herself in trouble? She's, remember, the wrong race from the wrong place. She represents, by the way she looks, a raiding party of people who have done this hundreds of times, have snuck onto the land of Israelites who live on the border between Moab and Israel and taken all the barley away. So there's a context for this. So that's the instructions that are given to Ruth from Naomi. And the first point that I want to make to you is this today, okay? There's two of them that I'm going to make total, but this is the first one. That faith without hope cannot love. Where am I getting that? What does that have to do with barley? Well, here's the idea. Naomi has had faith. We saw faith as far back as chapter one. 
I told you two weeks ago, she has pretty good theology. She understands that God is alive, God is present, God is invested, and she even holds God accountable to a certain degree for some of the negative things that have happened in her life, some of the tragedy that she's had to endure. That's good. The one piece of the puzzle that she's not quite getting in chapter one is she's forgotten that God is redemptive by nature. That God is not only just, which would mean do the right thing, good things happen, do the wrong thing, bad things happen, but he's also redemptive, which means sometimes do the wrong thing, get forgiven by God, and good things happen to you. That's a, that, that kind of flips the whole justice system on its head, but of course God does that by fulfilling the requirements of the law, not ignoring them. So now we're, we've reached a point, as of kind of the middle of chapter two and here beginning at chapter three, where we see a woman who had faith, but no hope, become a woman who now has faith and hope. And what's the difference for her? Prior to the hope showing up on the scene, prior to her hearing Boaz's name come out of Ruth's mouth, probably seems impossible to her. We don't know this, but when Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem, very likely they expected all of their relatives who stayed behind to be dead. That's why they left. It was a big enough deal that they abandoned their family's holdings, their, their kind of traditional historical piece of property in Bethlehem, and they, went, they walked away thinking that the only option for them was to go to another country to find food. When Naomi comes back into town, she's depressed, she's full of despair, she's bitter. She tells everybody, just call me bitter from now on. I don't even, want to, don't even use my name. I'm bitterness embodied. And so she's not going out and checking to see who's alive and who's around. She's assuming that this is just how she's going to die, alone and lonely in Bethlehem. When Ruth uses Boaz's name, everything changes for Naomi. Because now here's a man who she's familiar with, who's connected enough to them that there is a legal precedent to protect them. The one thing that they don't have unless they get connected to a man in that day and age. And again, I'm not saying that's right, but that's how it was. So she now has a reason to believe if we can hitch our wagon to this horse, we can survive. We can live. There's hope here. With that hope comes love. Everything up to this point with Ruth has been passive from Naomi's perspective. The last time she took an active role in Ruth's life was when she told Ruth, don't come with me. That was kind of her last warning shot across the bow for Ruth, where she was like, look, I'm giving up. I got nothing to offer. You need to go and take care of yourself. I can't do that for you. Since that moment, even with Ruth's beautiful soliloquy in chapter one, where she commits herself in life and death, and wherever you go, Naomi is silent. She doesn't have a word to say back to Ruth. This is the first moment for us in the story that we see Naomi taking an active role in Ruth's future because now she has hope. She had the faith. She believed God was there. A lot of us settle for that this time of year and the other 11 months of the year. We're comfortable acknowledging that a God does exist and he has something, something, something about life and death and eternity in Jesus and that's enough for us. It's vague, but we feel like we get it enough. We try to be good and that kind of makes up our Christian experience, if you will. Without hope, my friends, without the part of Advent that looks ahead and anticipates that God is going to do something great, you will find your battery, your pool of resources that allows you to love other people, it will be very shallow, very, very low. You will have a little bit of zeal when good things happen, but without that sure and rooted love, excuse me, that sure and rooted hope, you will not become the kind of person who can be loving in a way that puts other people first and that sacrifices what you have to to care for them. We've seen a transformation in Naomi's life. She had the faith, now she has the hope, and suddenly there's a tip of the spear. I mean, there's this pointed idea, this crazy plan. She's gonna risk it all, send Ruth essentially into the lion's den. Who knows what's gonna happen? But she's doing it out of love for Ruth and out of love for God because now hope has dawned in her life again. Let's keep reading and see what in the world happens when this crazy plan goes down. This is verse six. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor. She did it. And she did everything that her mother-in-law instructed her to do. 
When Boaz had finished his meal and was feeling satisfied, so he's full. You guys know what that's like. You work all day long, you eat a big meal, and you're not drunk because you haven't had any alcohol. You're sure you're not, but you just feel a little bit like the bed is calling your name. You fall asleep on the couch, you're just kind of, I think this is where Boaz is. It's been a long, hard day. He just ate a big meal, probably fresh, fresh bread baked from the barley harvest that morning. Very exciting and fulfilling for him and his men. And now he's headed to bed. He was feeling satisfied, so he lay down to sleep at the far end of the grain heap. So Ruth takes note of where he's sleeping so she can find him when it's too dark to see. Then Ruth crept up quietly. She uncovered his legs and she lay down beside him. In the middle of the night, he was startled. Any number of things here. His feet probably got cold, okay? That's what would happen to me if my wife pulled the covers off my feet in in the nighttime. Maybe he heard a noise. Maybe the smell of her perfumed oils entered his nostrils and he went, that's not what barley smells like. I don't know what happened, but something woke him up. He flips over and he sees a woman lying beside him, which is not what you expect at the threshing floor. The women are not there. They're not winnowing the barley. It's only kind of stinky, gross men who've been working all day long and have fallen asleep to guard this pile of grain. He says, who are you, into the darkness? He, he can see she's a woman. Maybe he can smell her. We don't know. Who are you? And she says, I am Ruth, and I'm your servant, which is a callback to the conversation that they had earlier in chapter two. This is the way that they've been speaking to each other. So that may seem unimportant, but it's very much a calling card for their relationship. She says, marry your servant, Marry me, Boaz. Maybe she's on one knee. I don't know. There's probably not a ring in play here, but marry me because you are a guardian of the family interests. Now, this doesn't necessarily feel like that romantic of an interaction. It feels a little bit like a woman who's down on her luck is making a legal appeal to a man who has legal standing of guardianship in her life. But we're going to see in just a minute from the way that Boaz responds that this is very intimate and personal in a way that is not sexual at all, but that demonstrates deep connection and meaning and a high value of both people, Ruth valuing Boaz and Boaz valuing Ruth. What I want to do just really quickly for you is help you understand what winnowing is. So allow me to chase this rabbit for no more than two minutes and we'll come right back to the text. If you would be willing, by a show of hands, because this is going to tell me how much time I need to spend on this, have any of you ever seen a cartoon devil? A cartoon devil. That's what I said. Yes, I said a cartoon devil. You have. Okay, that's more than half of us. All right. What does a cartoon devil hold in his hand? A pitchfork, that's right. Do you guys know why it's called a pitchfork? Yeah, you pitch with it, that's right. Thank you, Audrey. So a pitchfork is used literally, you guys have been shoveling snow, right? If you didn't, you're probably gonna have to go home and do it today. But you do this motion. You dig down and you throw it over your shoulder to the side or you dump it or whatever. Maybe you're fancy and you have like a snowblower. In my house, it's shovels, okay? And it's our lower back. Those are the two tools we use to move snow. So if you are winnowing grain, you're outside in the sun, and, and here's the deal. You harvest all day long, and then you take advantage of the natural properties of the place that you live in. So it's really kind of brilliant technology in play here. If you've ever been to a desert place, even if it's very, very hot in the morning and during the day, as the sun sets, it gets cold fast because there's just not a lot of foliage and therefore not a lot of humidity in the air, and so the temperature can change really quickly. When you have two different temperatures, and Mike, you've got to check me here, okay? I'm doing meteorology unqualified. So uh, when you have temperatures change fast, you get Wind, is that fair? Okay, Mike says sometimes, that's good enough for me. So here's what you do. You can either sit on the ground with all your buddies and you can open every barley head one by one and throw the chaff to the side and then drop a piece of barley in the bucket. That would be excruciating, miserable. People have done it, not the best way to do it. What's better is to go through the fields and gather everything, basically from a certain level up. Just cut it off at, 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 at like three or four feet and gather up all the chaff, which is the part you don't want, the top of the stalks, 
the grains of barley and put them in a big pile. And then wait until sunset when the temperature changes and the wind begins to blow across your property and you and all of your hired people and maybe your family members grab your pitchforks and you start to toss the barley up in the air. If it's had enough time to dry, this really cool thing will happen where the wind will carry all of the stuff you don't want away. I don't know where it goes. Maybe it blows onto your neighbor's land, but it goes away from where you are and all the heavy heads of grain fall back down to the ground and they're pretty much ready to use. They can be milled, they can be dried and preserved, they can be mashed immediately, soaked in water to cook with, whatever, but they're ready to go. So the scene here is pretty exciting to me, even though you probably don't care as much as I do. I think it's cool. This group of people at sunset has been working, working, working. You can imagine it's loud, maybe they're singing. That's what my crew would do if we had to do that kind of work. We'd be out there just kind of in sync together and we're tossing things in the air and the chaff is blowing away and Ruth is just kind of out at the edge watching this happen. And when they're done, all the men come in and they eat, they're exhausted, they're bone tired, and then they go and they sleep around the edges of this pile of grain to protect it all night long. Because now that it's been winnowed, I mean, it's as good as gold in this world. So this man, Boaz, his experience is, because he's a man of character and integrity, he doesn't just send his crew out to do the work, he's with them. He's there to look over the pile of grain to make sure everything is quality. Even if he really trusts his workers, he probably wants to make sure that they're not slipping too much into their pocket to take home. They eat together, he kind of presides over that, sitting in an important place, he eats till he's satisfied, and then he doesn't walk back to his house. He stays out there on the land. This is the act of a man of integrity. This is the act of a man who's invested in what's going on here in the people who are around him, in the work itself. He has found meaning, not in the multiplication of his influence or his power or his ability to invest super well in the grain fields or whatever. He finds meaning being with the people doing the work. He finds meaning sleeping out there with them, staying invested and connected personally to this future that not just him, but this whole city is kind of, this, this barley harvest goes bad. We're back in famine territory again. We're back in, we got to go to Moab or everybody's going to die in the next few months because there's no food. This is a hugely important moment in the life of this group of people in Bethlehem. And so to be woken up by a woman is startling. It's not only uncommon, it would be considered inappropriate for all the reasons that you might suspect it would be. Without knowing the end of the story, which most of us already do, and I've already kind of given away the fact that this isn't sexual by nature, that sh our spider senses should be tingling a little bit here. A well-dressed woman in the night approaching a man who's wealthy, a man of character, a man who we're going to find out in a minute is maybe a little bit older, but has his life figured out. This is all the warning signs, according to how our culture operates, of somebody who's prepared to use their body and offer some part of themselves in exchange for money, security, affirmation, who knows what. What happens with Boaz is very different from, I think, the way that this would play out if it was on the screen in 2023. So let's keep reading and see what happens. Boaz answers in verse 10. He says to Ruth, may you be rewarded by the Lord. Now, if you're using a real physical Bible, whether it's the scripture journal that you have or you have another Bible with you, you'll notice that L-O-R-N-D are all capitalized, even though the letters are kind of smaller, and that's weird because we don't write that way. Essentially, what the Bible's showing you here is that Boaz is using God's name. He's not just referring to God as this distant person. He's saying, Yahweh, may Yahweh bless you and reward you, my dear. Because this act of devotion is greater than what you did before. What's he talking about? What did she do before? She went out into the field and worked as hard as she could for her mother-in-law, to whom technically she really has no legal ties in Israel. She's gone above and beyond to serve her family, to prioritize this older woman who's a widow, to stay an encourager to her, to be willing now to act on this wild, harebrained plan that came out of nowhere. Minutes before, this woman wanted to be called Mara because of how bitter she was. Now she's chomping at the bit because she's hopeful and eager. I mean, there's a lot of things going on for Ruth right now, and Boaz can see it. 
And the point that he's making is not just that those things are good, but that by coming to him and appealing to him, she has exceeded all of the other things that she has done. Well, how can he say that? He goes on to say, because you have not sought to marry one of the young men, which implies that he is not that, whether they would be rich or poor. So now, my dear, do not worry. I intend or I plan to do for you everything that you have proposed, for everyone in the village knows that you are a worthy woman. Now, yes, it's true that I am a guardian, but there is another guardian who is a closer relative than I am. So stay here tonight, because it's still the middle of the night. And then in the morning, if that man agrees to marry you, then, then fine, he has the right to do that. Let's let him do it. But if he does not want to do that, then I promise as surely as Yahweh lives, I will marry you. So sleep here until morning. And so she did. She slept beside him there until the morning, and she woke up while it was still dark. And Boaz thought to himself, no one must know that a woman has visited the threshing floor. Why? Because they did something wrong? Because there was impropriety in play? No, but because it looked like that. Even a few thousand years ago, that's what you expect to happen. That's what you think. That's what the world's going to tell you you have to settle for. And this man is saying, I want to protect this woman even from the reputation of that. So we're going to be strategic about how we do this to keep her hands clean and to protect her through this process. So he says to her in verse 15, hold out your shawl that you are wearing and grip it tightly, which is kind of funny. But we find out why right after that. So she does, and he measures out just right there from the pile, just kind of reaches over and grabs with his hands 60 pounds of barley. And I don't know where Ruth bought this shawl, probably Costco, right? It's not going anywhere. 60 pounds of grain goes in her scarf, and she puts it up on her shoulders, and he goes into town, and she goes back to Naomi. He's on his way early morning, before the sun has even come up, to go and do the business that he is committed to do. He further proves himself as a man of character. He's not just telling her the right things to get whatever he wants from her. He is following through. What I think is really amazing is if you'll look back with me for just a second at verse 9, when he asks Ruth, who are you? She says, marry your servant because you are a guardian of the family interest. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but last week we read through chapter 2, and we saw in verse 12 of chapter 2 that when Boaz and Ruth met one another, I think Tyler referred to it as their meet cute, so we'll go with that. That's not necessarily how it's written in Hebrew, but that's okay. Uh, they meet each other in the field, and Boaz does this really interesting thing. He goes way kind of past the line of, of Old Testament formal language, and he says to Ruth, a woman that he just met a minute ago, may God bless you. It's implied that he's using the same kind of language the psalmist uses when he says, may the wings of God guard us, kind of like a mother hen, the same way Jesus speaks in the New Testament. When he looks at Jerusalem, he says, I would have come to you as a hen comes to her brood and protected you, but you've rejected me all along. This is a long-running theme in the Bible that God will protect and cover over his children with his wings. Ruth is giving Boaz an opportunity to put his money, or in this case, his barley, where his mouth is. That's what she's saying to him. When we see her interact with him in chapter 3, verse 9, she's in a way implying to him, you said yesterday, may God bless me. I'm saying, go ahead and let him do that, Boaz. Why don't you be the blessing, buddy? I'm ready. Let's do it. You think God needs to move in this area of my life? I agree with you. You have the means to do it. Let's go for it. I also think that there's a really interesting thing when Boaz wakes up and sees her. He says, who are you? Obviously, he doesn't know who she is in the dark. But there's almost an undertone to all of this where he's saying, not just, who are you? But, who are you? Like, why would you do this with me? I mean, we trace that on through the next five verses. When he communicates with her in verses 10 through 15, there's a really strong implication that she has honored him in a way that he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. 
He's floored by her. I think there's a, a lot of romance going on in the way that this is written and, and would be read in Hebrew, but you don't speak Hebrew or read it, so that's not super relevant to you. But trust me when I tell you, this is not just a formal legal interaction happening here. This is not a Ruth pulls a document out and opens it and says, I just need you to sign here and here and initial there and there and date that, and we'll take it down to the courthouse and get it taken care of. When Boaz looks at her in the eyes and says to her, under the stars, in Bethlehem, Ruth, you have honored me in a way that exceeds everything else you've done. That's a very extreme thing to say. You've loved me more than Naomi. I mean, how, does he, how, how dare he in a way, right? I mean, think of all she's done to be committed to this other woman and, and to show how desperately faithful she will be, no matter what it costs her. And yet to Boaz, a man who is older, a man who is unmarried, a man who, if you were to trace his family tree, uh, his mother and his grandmother are somewhat scandalous. I don't know if you guys know in the Old Testament, uh, a woman named Rahab. Anybody ever heard of Rahab before? She's a prostitute in the walled city of Jericho. Some spies sneak in. She helps them and is faithful to God, even though she doesn't know who God is. So he saves her. Yeah, that's, uh, that's in Boaz's uh, family tree. That's, that's his, uh, one of his relatives, very, very near to him. Now, likely, the reason that he's single is because of her and because of the stigma of being connected to her, a non-Jewish woman, he himself being probably only a half or a quarter or an eighth Israelite himself. He has land, he's a faithful, he's a man of character, but there's some reason that a woman has never been interested in him, even though it might make sense on paper. Now here is Ruth, a young woman, a woman who shows herself to have character, to be hardworking, from Boaz's perspective, a prize of a wife. And she comes to him in the night with every opportunity to present herself with impropriety and scandal. And instead she honors him and he returns that honor in kind. Our culture wouldn't know how to present this story to you in a movie or a book without making it sexual. It just would be impossible. Everybody would go, there's no way. There's just, that's silly. It's prudish. People are not this way. What's actually really interesting to me is our culture is right. <laughs> People are not this way. People of God are this way. People whom God is leading, people whom God has grown and changed, people to, who are so committed to God that they don't see themselves as primary in their own lives. These are the kinds of people who become equipped in their waiting to say, I've waited this long and I can wait a little longer. The second point that I want to make for you today and where we'll land the plane this morning is that waiting on God positions us for joy. That's not what we expect. We feel like waiting is painful. It's annoying. It isn't fun. It feels counterproductive especially when waiting forces us to not use something in our life that we feel like is a skill or a gift, a way that we could be serving other people. Why, God? Why won't you do this? I want to help. I want to jump in. I want to be a part. Why? Why say no? Why now? Think about Naomi. Think about Ruth. Think about Boaz. All three of these people who have become primary characters in this story, they're all in a season of waiting. Boaz has waited his whole life, and never has a woman taken him this seriously before. Ruth has had to wait since the moment her husband died. She's had to wait on foot all through this journey. She's been waiting on Naomi to wake up and come back to life a little bit. Naomi's been waiting to get back to Bethlehem since she left when the famine started. Unfortunately, now she's back waiting to see what her future is going to hold. She's obviously not a hot commodity in town. No one's approaching her to marry her and give her a new future. She's stuck. She's bitter. She's angry. She's depressed. She's hopeless until a certain point. All three of these people look like they are on their way down in life. It looks like, by any metric that you use, that things are only getting worse, and all we would expect is for life to get harder, and relationships to get more complicated, and stuff to just be unpleasant in general for these people. And yet, because they're focused on God and they are waiting with him, they have maximized the potential for joy in their life. Because here's the difference between joy and happiness. This is something Christians spend a lot of time debating a lot of times. Uh, happiness is circumstantial. It's real. It's a lot of fun. It's not bad to be happy. But happiness comes and goes. 
Happiness is what happens when your boat is blown by the wind. Joy is what happens when God puts a motor on your boat that doesn't care what the weather is like or where you're headed or how much shape your boat is in. It just sets you on track and keeps you moving forward. For these three people, they're going to have a little bit of happiness along the way, and we should be happy for them about that. This is a great story of God fulfilling promises that he's made and being faithful and near to people who are in a lot of pain. But it's also important to notice that by waiting on him, they've put themselves in the best possible circumstances for him to do something that they could never do. And that's really what a miracle is. If you need a definition for a miracle, it's God doing something you can't. That's what a miracle is. It's God acting in a way that you don't have control, that you can't participate in, that you can't cause or affect or change or push or pull or influence. It's you being all the way out of the driver's seat and waiting. And then God, because he loves you, doesn't punish you in that position of weakness. He doesn't take advantage of you waiting. He's working, working, working. And frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, by waiting on God, we're actually getting out of his way most of the time. We're not really suffering. We're not, really, we're not bothering him. He's not having to do more work. We often are the kids who wander into dad's office and just start ripping up pieces of paper and playing on the computer and dumping water all over the keyboard. And God's like, I love you, but that's not really helpful right now. If you could just wait, I got it. Trust me, I got it. I'm good. I've been doing this a very, very long time. So for these three folks, we're going to see now that this kind of hope that's empowered them to be loving, to love God, to love each other, is going to position them for maximum joy. Think of the way that Ruth woke up Boaz. This young woman, a hard worker, must be attractive on some level, eligible, right? Because even in Naomi being a widow, there's a little bit of inheritance on the line. I think that Ruth could have probably found a different man to be her husband. Now, obviously, there's legal implications of Boaz being a redeemer and how that's a really good thing legally in the nation of Israel. But for a Moabite woman, that's not the highest of her priorities. She could have married a younger man. She could have bumped into one of those workers. She could have woken up anybody she wanted to who she was particularly attracted to or who she thought she might be able to build a future with. She could have even woken Boaz up a different way, right? She didn't have to go the way of respect and honor. That wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that a person has used sexuality or sexual engagement to win someone over or to win a circumstance or to take advantage of someone else. She chooses to go the way of honor because she wants to wait on God. She's not going to get ahead of God. She's not going to go sooner than he says to go. She's also not going to drag her feet and fail to follow through. I think this is why she's so ready when Naomi offers her this harebrained scheme to sneak back over to Boaz's property and see if she can isolate him and uncover his feet and all the stuff that happened. For us, I think this is the heartbeat of Advent, is not getting out ahead of God, not being so hopeful maybe that we become zealous in a way that's unhelpful and we start to decide that we know what God wants and so we're going to put all the pieces together and just force it to happen. We also can't fall into the other ditch on the other side of the road, which is to just do nothing, passive, angry, depressed, disconnected, and simply believe that things aren't going to get better. Hope is actually an activity. Waiting is an activity. It's maintaining your inner character, your integrity, as you stay ready and poised, trusting that God will move when the time is right, not growing weary in that waiting. There's so much in the New Testament that deals explicitly with us having the discipline by the power of the Holy Spirit to not rush ahead and not fall behind, but to just stay in step with God. For all of us, waiting comes with the temptation to take things into our own hands, to create for ourselves the future that we think we need. The temptation to act when God says to wait is really the most basic form of sin, if you think about it. So now we've seen that Boaz is ready to move forward. He's going to follow through. And I want you to just allow me, if we can, to wrap up this chapter by looking at verse 16 and see what happens when Ruth gets back home to Naomi and shares with her how that evening went. Ruth returned to her mother-in-law, and when Ruth returned to her, Naomi said, how did things turn out for you, my daughter? 
Again, this is not in the Bible, but I, I like to picture uh, Naomi just kind of up with a cup of coffee at the table. She's in her robe. She's been waiting all night. Is, is Ruth coming back? Is she gonna, are they going to kill her? Are they going to kill me? I don't know what's going to happen, but this is our only chance, so we're rolling the dice and trusting God. She asks the question, and Ruth answers her. She tells her about everything Boaz has done for her. Then she says, by the way, <laughs> this shawl I've been dragging through town, he gave me these 60 pounds of barley, and he said to me, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, stay put, my daughter, just wait again. Wow, wow, after all of this, that's the last step, is to wait again until you know how the matter turns out, for the man Boaz will not rest until he has taken care of the matter today. It's a sign here that isn't explicitly written into your Bible, but it is a symbol that Boaz intends to do whatever it takes to redeem Ruth and Naomi, the fact that he sends her back with double what she was able to produce for herself a few days before. Ruth brings home 30 pounds of barley. Boaz sends her back with a gift of 60, which is meant to communicate, I'll do whatever it takes. This isn't about how hard you've worked and this isn't yours anymore. I'm picking up the responsibility and I will carry it from here to the finish line. And that's where we'll go next week. Next weekend at Christmas Eve, uh, we're gonna do our best to navigate the, the nuances of Boaz as a redeemer and then to try to see Jesus in the story and in the conclusion of the story and how he also is a redeemer who came to the earth willing to spend whatever it would cost to redeem us. What I want you to understand today is that Naomi, like Boaz, like Ruth, they all understand that waiting can be fruitful. That for the Christian, uniquely, waiting bears fruit in our lives. Waiting actually is a real thing you can actually do that will put you in a position to see God do things that you can't do yourself. It's like prayer. You don't pray because it's productive. You pray because it's the right thing to do and because it's good for your relationship. Waiting with God is the same thing. We don't wait on God to mobilize God. We don't wait on God to, to prove to him that we're serious Christians and that he really needs to do what we think is right. We wait on God because God already has our future handled. And so we have the privilege, unlike people who don't know God, we have the privilege of just being with him. That's actually safe. It's reasonable. It's a good use of your time. It's the right kind of investment into your future to just wait and to try to allow God to grow contentment and satisfaction in you as you take no discernible steps toward progress. Imagine embracing that on purpose. Imagine this week, as your kids get out of school and you have a break from work, not simply filling every day to the brim with stuff, but enjoying and participating in and fighting for and protecting some nothingness along the way. To just be, to just be together, to just be you, to just be with God, and to remember that he is God and that you are not. Even Naomi, who I think is really the hero at this chapter point because she comes up with the, the plan and, and she's present and supportive and willing, even she has realized that the best way that she can love the God who has finally given her hope is to wait on him. She's realized. And so too, we do that. We wait on God as well. We, like Naomi, some of us have entered this season empty from our own perspective, right? This is, this is just the time we've been dreading because it's gonna make us confront the losses that have made their way into our lives in the last 12 months. Some of us are tired. Many of us have been worn down by the cold and the dark of our first December in Alaska. Many of us will spend these holidays thousands of miles from the people who we would really like to be with if it was up to us. And some of us, from a larger standpoint, are waiting for God to reveal the next steps that he wants us to take in our life, with our family, in our career, in our faith. What I want you to know is that if you wait with God, you wait with purpose. If you wait with God, you wait with hope. You wait with God. You wait with Jesus. You wait with the Spirit of God, who themselves are all anticipating Jesus' return just like you are. 
They're not bored. They're not so busy that that's not a high priority right now. All of heaven, when you read John's revelation, all of heaven is stretched like a bowstring waiting for the moment that Jesus returns and everything happens fast at that point. You're in good company. When he does come into your life, he will relieve the pain that you carry. When he does come into your life, he will make good on his promises. He will give you hope. He will open your eyes to what he's been doing all along that you couldn't see because despair and bitterness may have crept in. I'll finish today with this uh, little story that I like. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with The Lord of the Rings. Probably you've seen it at some point. If you went to a Christian college, you probably had to watch it in somebody's dorm room. That was my experience over and over again. Just letting you know. Uh, Lord of the Rings is three movies. It's three books. I read the books before I saw the movies. There's a part in the first movie in the first book that, that's the same, which is good, because most of what was good about the books didn't make it into the movies, unfortunately. There you go. That's where I land on that debate. Uh, in the first one, there is a moment when a wizard whose name is Gandalf arrives in a place called the Shire. It's the little town built into the hillside that the hobbits live in, and the hobbits are like the most pathetic people on earth. They just do nothing, and they have no real anything to offer to the world, and I think Tolkien puts them in the story to tell us, like, you can just be a person, and that's good enough. But they're having this birthday party for a guy named Bilbo. Bilbo decides to insult all of his family members and put on a ring and disappear. And so Gandalf's going to be the finishing act. He's going to bring the fireworks. They're going to light the fireworks. If you've seen the movie, it goes wrong. There's a dragon. It's pretty cool. But there's a moment where Gandalf shows up and Bilbo's nephew Frodo meets him on the road. And Frodo's distressed. He's nervous because they've been waiting on Gandalf and the party's today. And what if Gandalf didn't come? How would the party go through without the fireworks? What's going to, he's just, he's panicking and freaking out. And he hops up in the wagon with Gandalf and Gandalf is totally serene calm, quiet, nonplussed, unstressed, good to go. And so Frodo's pushing on him, and he's, why, why haven't you been here, and what's going on, what's wrong? And Gandalf says to him that a wizard is never late, and nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he intends to. And my friends, that is who Jesus will be to you. He will not arrive earlier than you need him. That may mean that he doesn't come when you call right away, but he will arrive right when you need him, not a moment earlier, but he also won't be late. And you don't have to worry that even as that day, that deadline, that moment, that choice is creeping toward you and you're nervous that you're not going to hear from him and you're never going to know what you're supposed to do and so you're going to get it wrong and you're just living in anxiety and tension, he's on his way. He's on his way. When he came the first time, perfect timing. When he comes again, perfect timing. And here we are in between those, waiting for him, trusting and anticipating that he will show up and when he does, he will bring everything with him that we need. So my hope and prayer for you this season as you enter into one of the busiest weeks in American life is that you would trust God along the way. That you would give him your days, you would give him your hours, you would let this horizon of the new year and the new projects and all of the stuff that you're gonna try to do that's gonna fix your life, let it go. Let it out of your hands. Allow that pace to outrun you. Allow yourself to fall away from the pace of the world and stay in step with Jesus. If you do that, you will be, you'll be positioned for joy. There's a great, great opportunity for you to know God better and to see him follow through. So I wanna pray that for you and then we're done this morning. Father, thank you for your word today. Uh, as we thank you every time that we come to it, it is such an amazing revelation of your character, what you want for us, how we can accomplish those kinds of things. But more than anything, this time of year, it's a comfort to me, a chance to open this ancient book and realize that people have always been the same that my anxieties are not original to me, they're not new, that my fears, my concerns, my self-doubt, my questions, my, my constantly running motor that wants to do more and achieve more and succeed more, these are not new things. That you understand these things, God, and that you speak into them in a way that encourages me to be at peace, to find rest in you, 
That's my prayer for these men and women and their families, God, for those who are over busy all the way across the spectrum to those who are deeply lonely and just wish there was somebody to be with and something to do. I ask your presence into their lives, God, that you would slow those of us who are over busy and that you would buoy and lift up those of us who have found ourselves in a pit this time of year. We trust you to work in us, God, and we're open to your leadership. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.